to your Bible, custom designed to your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church. And here again, as always, with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey there. And so week 37, some time in Daniel, some time in uh, Job, as well as some time in John. And so uh, we start up on the back kind of half in some ways to the book of Daniel. Uh, and we get into a whole bunch of visions that Daniel has. And um, this is the wonderful world of apocalyptic. It's it's image rich. It is um, uh, in some ways um, maybe even bigger than the scenes that are being portrayed. And, um, and it's important as you sort of read through to kind of parse out, all right, like if you were Daniel's audience, what are you hearing? How do you understand this? And, and what might Daniel be saying? And, and how does that apply uh, to, to someone in Daniel's time or at the author's time that would hear this and understand this? And so, um, and then from there, start drawing out principles, but we'll talk about some of that as we go. And so Daniel's vision is these four beasts. Now, the idea that there's four things, that they represent four different kingdoms, we've kind of been here before. And Mm -hmm. as we pointed out, this is a big chiasm between chapter two and chapter seven, and very much parallels chapter two. So our starting point should probably be at least to start thinking through Nebuchadnezzar's kingdoms. Maybe they match, maybe they don't. Um, and it seems like they sure do from right from the get-go. We've had this first uh, beast and it has its wings plucked. It starts acting like an animal, but it's restored. It's given the mind of man. And so um, I don't know how this cannot be Nebuchadnezzar, who basically has the mind of an animal, gets restored with the mind of the man. His power is taken away, but then uh, ultimately is restored. Uh, and then the second one... Um, and, and these are just details, but I think it's still important to kind of talk through there. There's a group like the Persians or the Medes who destroy basically the three biggest kingdoms in the world uh, at the time. And it's like a bear devouring three things. And then there's Greek or Roman world of what might be the next few kingdoms. There were definitely these ideas that there were 10 kings with the Greek culture. There were 10 emperors in Rome until the fall of the temple. So there's different thoughts on exactly which one might be played out in these stories. And so, um, but it does seem like Daniel seems to have some historical context for his audience. And if it's written a little bit later, this might be stuff that they're going through right now as they talk about these different kingdoms. So um, it might be important as, as they sort of hear this, that they hear, all right, God's talked about this before these these kingdoms are going to come these kings are going to go we're expecting this this isn't unnatural god has talked about this and what do we do about this and and that becomes i think conversation that we will get into in the next few chapters so something to consider when we talk about apocalyptic literature is what apocalyptic actually is and probably most of us associate it with end times but it's really more of a revealing of what actually is true. God sort of moves the curtains and separates the physical and the spiritual so we get this heavenly perspective on an earthly situation and that's important to keep in mind as you read this and do your best to understand what Daniel is referencing here um, in that this is This is giving us a glimpse into what is happening in the unseen realm so that we can have hope and encouragement and purpose and direction as we live our lives as exiles. And so one of the comforting things that you're going to see come up through these sort of apocalyptic visions is that God knows everything that is going to happen. He knows the evil that is coming to pass, and it can give us confidence in the sovereignty 
and God's hand, sovereignty of God and his hand in what's coming, even when it feels like it's going to get worse before it gets better. Yeah. And, and apocalyptic, and we'll deal with this also in Revelation, like talks about sort of that cosmic behind the scene greater than the current reality, but uses elements and images and stuff that for the audience will, will connect to stuff that they understand or they, they seem to have some knowledge of. So even the use of the bear and stuff like that, like that was an image that was representative of a certain kingdom at the time. And so mm-hmm. um, those things become important, particularly as we get into Revelation and start talking about Rome. And so, um, and then we get this text around the Ancient of Days, a, a, a text certainly picked up um, by Jesus with the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. Um, and, and there's the Daniel time and then there's Jesus' words. But for Daniel's time, I mean, this is, this is teaching them, look, this current group is going to pass, this corrupt kingdom, this or, or these next few kingdoms that are coming, they aren't the final message. They There's a message of hope that there's one who's eventually going to come and and he's going to take this, this throne in front of the Ancient of Days, who, who is really God. The, the oldest thing, the thing that has no beginning point, um, that he's going to take this position of authority. And so this is a hopeful moment. And in the text above, Jesus certainly takes takes us on. So whether this um, he goes into a bit of teaching uh, towards the end of his life to his disciples when he talks about the destruction of the temple and the Son of Man sort of being vindicated, being um displayed as true and right. And Jesus kind of picks up this language uh, in his discourse. So we just heard and read about all these wicked powers that we're going to have take over and rule. But then Daniel gets to see God intervene as the all-powerful judge in this sort of heavenly courtroom. And he defeats the beast. And so this is meant to be a comfort to believers who are suffering. While this passage does show us that some of the evil is going to be prolonged, there will be a final judgment on those kings and kingdoms who elevate themselves above God. And then uh, 7, 13, or 14, if if Daniel is two chiasms and then one giant chiasm of a book, this is the most central part of it. This is the central chiasm of the whole book that um, in the midst of all their suffering, in the midst of all these kingdoms, in the midst of what really what I just said, but the verses 13 and 14, there's coming a day where the Son of Man will stand before God with the book of life and he will make everything right to the group in exile or these people that have seen the temple fall. Like justice is coming persevere. Faithfulness will not go ignored by God. And son of man is a really key phrase that Jesus actually refers to him more as himself. Jesus refers to himself more as the son of man than any other title throughout the gospel. So it's definitely a key phrase that moves into the new Testament and our understanding of the Christ. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly a debated phrase too. Uh, it wasn't the most used phrase up until Ezekiel and Daniel and some others. And even they use it differently. Ezekiel actually uses son of man for himself and Daniel will use it for this mysterious kind of figure. And so it's always a question leading up to Jesus's time of who is the son of man? How do we interpret him? And, and it's uh, and then we've talked about this previously in the podcast too. So, um, and then Van Daniel's vision sort of gets interpreted by these angels, uh, or by, um, an angel who helps clarify some of what's going on. Um, and, and there, yeah, there's a question of like, all right, exactly who are these people and stuff like that. And, as we've kind of stated, there's sort of the larger principle, but at the same time, I think it's still really helpful. I think there's a whole world of teaching that portrays that everything in Daniel is this future thing. And we got to be looking out for all these little pieces that are going to affect sort of our politics are going to affect um, how we make decisions about things. But, but to, to kind of take a step back and be like that, that, that may not be what Daniel's primary motivation and what he's talking about really is. There's a larger principle at hand and maybe some of the stuff has, has 
very contextual understanding for David, for Daniel and his crowd. Um, and, and so, um, that we understand hope in God through Daniel and things like that. But, um, I think we got to be careful not to suddenly think that this writing is for, um, 20th and 21st century America to interpret the end times and all this kind of stuff that I don't think that's Daniel's position at all. That doesn't mean that there's not principles and, and we'll see someone like John pick up these principles in in revelation. But at the same time, um, for those of you that take a very, um, a position of, uh, you know what, we, we got to rebuild this temple. We got to interpret who this 10th kingdom is, all this kind of stuff that there are different ways. And I may say this kind of harshly more faithful ways to read the text in its context, uh, than to do that, um, and, and apply some of that. Yeah. I don't know. So yeah, so what we're what what Chris is getting at is there's a lot of different ways to misinterpret this when there isn't a knowledge of cultural context or historical context. And we can look at those different things, but we can also pull back and ask what the purpose of this passage is. And I think it's written right there in verses 26 and 27. It says, But the court shall sit in judgment, and his the the wicked ones, dominion shall be taken away, and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the most high. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom. And so I think the point of this is to emphasize that things will get bad, but it's not the end. The ancient of days will sit on the judgment throne and make all things right. And there will be an eternal kingdom that is ruled by God and God's people. So this should be comforting and hopeful to exiles, both in Daniel's time and also for us. And it is important that we accurately interpret this passage of scripture. But part of that looks like stepping back and looking at the big picture and what is meaning to be communicated here, which is hope to exiles. Yeah. Uh, Daniel has a vision of a ram and a goat. Uh, once again, picking up on images that are actually quite common back in the day. The ram would have represented Persia. And the goat would have represented Greece at the time. Uh, those were common kind of images. Um, and um, you have uh, one who was going to come and conquer. So um, you can get into some of the history of probably Antiochus and why this this story particularly is likely uh, that story more than anything else. Um, and then we get numbering and days. And it's a little funky. But once once again, this is giving these this context, and and Daniel might be written around the time that all this is happening to be like, look, God's God's already kind of led us in this direction. We know this is coming, even if this guy desecrates our temple. Guess what? God's still going to win in the end of this. Yeah. And Gabriel explains it. Uh, this vision, Daniel's certainly sick about it. He knows his ancestors are going to experience the suffering again. So. The vision explanation here is so that God's people can be prepared for the coming events and persecution. And Daniel is sickened by the evil he knows is coming. And this can be the same for us at times. We know that it's not easy to be Christian in many parts of the world. And as we feel that, as we even feel the sickness over the wickedness and evil in the world, we need to keep coming back to this imagery of the Ancient of Days on the Judgment Throne and know that this evil that we're seeing or we're hearing about is not the end of the story. Yeah, and and this destruction that's kind of foretold here, I mean, it's very different than... Like the destruction of the temple in Daniel's time was a destruction as a response to Israel's brokenness, Israel's sin. It was right. It was just. It was God responding to this. But I think Daniel's so sick to his stomach because this is not, con- it's not couched the same way. Uh, it's very much like, look, your, your descendants are going to suffer because these kingdoms are just so ruthless. And so, mm-hmm. um, and Daniel prays for his people. He just, he, he realizes also that he's got, they've got 70 miles. He finds this copy of Jeremiah. He know, he kind of does the math, understands 70 years are, they're going to be in exile. And so Daniel prays, he prays on behalf of his people and for his city. 
I just love this really lengthy prayer for a nation and on behalf of a nation and a people. Daniel identifies with them in such a way that he's willing to take corporate ownership of their sin. Even if he's been faithful to God and hasn't necessarily committed these sins, he has owned it and claimed responsibility for it as a people. And so instead of being like, all right, God, like these 70 years are almost over, he gets into sackcloth and ashes and he repents and he prays for restoration. Yeah, and then sort of the question of do do our prayers matter, especially to a sovereign God who is speaking towards, in this, at least in this book towards things that are going to happen and all these things are going to take place. But Daniel prays and we sort of see the sort of angelic, the, the, the workers of God kind of show up. And, uh, and so we sort of see how Daniel's prayers play some role in sort of turning that cog of God's sovereignty and how um, angels will hear and respond. Yeah, this is a, a huge encouragement to not give up on prayer. Even if you feel like you don't see the fruit of it right away, in this story, we get a glimpse that the moment Daniel begins to pray, word goes out and Gabriel comes and takes action. So again, let's step back and remember that there are things happening in the spiritual realm that we cannot see. And this is something we believe as Christians, that God is at work in spiritual places. And so continue to pray those faithful prayers because God is hearing and stuff is happening because of those prayers. Yeah. And then Daniel sort of has a 70 weeks kind of conversation. And once again, this feels very Ezekiel. It's like sevens and 62 sevens, 72 seven, like all this kind of stuff. The same way that Ezekiel almost describes the throne room with all these numbers and all these things going on. Um, and on the back end of this book, this is sort of the center of the story too. This is um, the text that becomes a little bit of the center that after 60 weeks and the anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and sanctuary and the end will come, which is such a, a different half because the first half we had sort of, it was an Aramaic and the center of that was this pagan King who sort of proclaims how, how God is true and real and humbles those who are prideful. And then on the back end, we, we suddenly get back into Hebrew and it almost feels like identity, but then the sort of central news is, yeah, but there's still this terrible thing that's going to be coming and comes a little bit of the focus of the text here. Um, and so, yeah, uh, and it's super structured, the text, if, if you, if you know, you're the Hebrew, if you want to dive in, there's definitely some structure to how, um, verses 24 to 27 are really played out. It's sometimes we dismiss these writers as ancient and just kind of writing as sort of uneducated kind of people back in their day. But, there's so much structure, so much beauty sometimes to how they write. And this little section becomes one of those if you really want to parse it out. And we're getting a reminder again here that God has appointed a certain amount of time until he ends his people's sufferings and they shouldn't lose heart. Yeah. And Daniel has this sort of terrifying vision. Um, it becomes definitely the sort of behind the curtain here. Uh, we, we explicitly hear from the angel that um, there's there's Persia and it has some sort of spiritual power. And then there's the spiritual power of God through these angels. And there's a battle. There's a war going on. And, um, and the imagery in this text is even very Isaiah. Daniel like can't speak until this angel touches his lips. Uh, and then he's, then he's finally worthy uh, to speak, even though Daniel feels unworthy. And so, uh, but this angel encourages Daniel. The angel says such sort of encouraging words really uh, of how much God loves him and all this kind of stuff. Again, we are reminded that the challenges we're facing in the physical realm have parallels in the spiritual realm. We'll see this in Job as well. I just love how the angel encourages Daniel by reminding him that he is beloved and then encouraging him to not fear and to be strong and courageous. Yeah. And then the kings of the north and south, um, this is very much, uh, if you understand their history, um, very much uh, in line with what happened between Persia and Greece. Uh, none of it's 
kind of new. And uh, not only that, but the destruction of the temple by, uh, by uh, Antiochus is called, and it becomes called amongst the Jews as the abomination that causes desolation. So um, yes, mm-hmm. there's, there's very much this picture of this, this battle, but it, be- it does become analogous to this kind of cosmic battle between good and evil, this more giant battle between uh, the good kingdom of God versus the evil kingdom of the world. Yeah. And we know who wins. Yep. And then uh, the end time, uh, Michael, the, the great prince who protects his people will arise and yeah, there's going to be distress. And, but those whose names are written will be saved. Like the dead will awaken from everlasting shame or, or life. And like, and so there's sort of this, this future vision and, and we're told sort of Daniel, like go your way. Like this is all going to happen. This is all going to take place, but go your way, go in peace. And he's promised this inheritance for the end of his days. And there's a promise of resurrection and a heavenly rest for the faithful. And so that probably made you think of the resurrection of Jesus Christ or what we read about rest in the book of Hebrews. And so again, what we're seeing in Daniel is this connecting all of these different parts of biblical history and and pulling them together in a way that we see the work of God from Genesis to Revelation. Yeah, so final thoughts? So the Gospel Transformation Bible wraps up this commentary by the quote, We follow a crucified Savior to a heavenly rest. The path has inescapable pain, but the end is eternal, blessed, and sure. I just love this meta narrative theme in Daniel that follows the presence and work of God among a people who are in exile. They lived different lives in the Babylonians around them, and they were given promises of increasing difficulty, but they were also given continual reassurance that God was so sovereign over all that happened in the physical realm. And there's a spiritual realm parallel to what's happening physically, and it will end in rest for those who are faithful to God. And so it's a really good encouragement for us who are living as believers in exile as well to remember in God's sovereignty, remember the heavenly rest promise to us and remember that we can be confident that even if it feels like it gets more and more evil god is in control and it's not the end of the story yeah uh, to me apocalyptic kind of literature like daniel and certainly also like revelation functions less about trying to help us have um, all these things to look for and more way more pastoral and surprisingly encouraging like for those who are suffering, and and this is true in Daniel's time, it's going to be true for the early church, that they're sort of wondering what's really going on, when's all this going to end, what's God really up to, will this wickedness and these wicked kings and these wicked kingdoms ever be dealt with? And, and the book of Daniel becomes this amazingly helpful um, and encouraging word and to a people that telling them, look, God's still working, and he knows how these things will come to pass. There's kings and there's kingdoms. They're going to come. They're going to go. So remain faithful. And those whose names are in the book of life, they'll be saved. And that's your encouragement. And and authors like John are going to pick up on that same imagery to say like, look, we've been here before. Kings have come. Kings have gone. Stay faithful. Mm. Stick with it. And and you know how the the final battle goes. And so um, just continue. Continue on and, and endure. So yeah, uh, and then we move into the book of Job this week. and um, Which is interesting because Job, it's almost as we're, even as we're talking through this right now, I just see that like Job is telling kind of a similar story of suffering and hope and suffering, but with totally different genre. So Daniel's more apocalyptic, at least what we just talked about, and Job is wisdom literature, but it's kind of telling the same story. Yeah, and and I'm, I'm in the camp that Job is not as old as some pastors have probably told you in the past um, that uh, it's likely an exilic style book, um, but there's 
features of it that are very different than just about every book we have in scripture. Um, it's remarkably kind of non-Jewish uh, in, in its text. Uh, it doesn't have a lot of mentions of really anything in Judaism, uh, temples and exodus and monarchies and all this kind of stuff. Um, and, and what causes some people to go, well, therefore it's really old. It's before all that stuff. But I think that's a bit of an argument from silence and stuff like that. There's other reasons to think it might be more modern. Um, and there's also the the common interpretation that this book is dealing with why is there evil in the world? Like why do good things or why do bad things happen to good people? But I, I, don't, I don't know if that's really the drive of this book only because that question never really gets answered in this book. Um, and, and so but I do think that's an ancient question. And I do think that this book is picking up on that ancient question, but ultimately has a different conclusion not to give an answer to it. Um, Cause when you're done, you're sort of like, I still don't totally know why bad things happen to good people. Um, and so uh, the book is very structured. There's some argue that there's more chiasms in Job than just about any other book in scripture. And not only that, but the book itself is one giant one again, uh, just like Daniel was, it seemed to be, especially if this is written around the same time as Daniel, it seemed to be, quite a popular way of writing. Uh, and so um, with chapter 28, this wisdom hymn in the middle of the book, it's like a pretty crucial chapter in the book um, as the center, but we'll deal with that when we get to chapter 28. Yeah. So the questions for you to keep in your mind as you read through it is, is God just? And does God run the universe on the principle of justice? And how is Job's suffering to be explained? And I think as we look at that and then we look at how God speaks to Job at the end of the book, it'll give us some perspective that maybe we didn't have before. Yeah. So diving right in, uh, we get introduced to the character of Job who is like heavily like pious, like mm-hmm. he fears God. He's offering up sacrifices for kids just in case they might've sinned. It's intense, but he's blameless. He's upright. This is very much like, this is God describing the kind of character Job is. Yeah. And then we're introduced to Satan, the Hasatan. And quite literally, uh, it's it's it can be translated as the opposer or the accuser. Uh, Satan's not like the formal name. It's not like Bob. Um, it, it is a descriptive term of the the, the person, this this character. Um, and, and I think that's going to matter how the story goes. Because in the first few chapters, like we, certainly we see the devastation that happens in Job's life. But we don't see the accuser step in yet um, in terms of the very identity of being the accuser. And we're going to see that in, in these friends as we go through this book. Um, and, and it's important to know really what God says about Job. Cause once again, we're reminded, uh, reminded that Job, like he has a servant Job and, and he's blameless and he's upright and he fears God and he turns away from evil. And so this becomes like a multiple times included identifier. And I, and, and I think we have to keep that constantly in the back of our head as we read this chapter, which I think is a little bit of how, why the, this book is structured, how it is. And, um, and Satan's reasonable here. It's like, look, of course, Job worships you, God, like you've made his life kind of easy. Like you've been blessing him nonstop. Like what happens when those blessings are not there? And so this wager is made between the two. Keep in mind as you read it, that this initial part is written in such a way that we see that the power of Satan is limited really only to what God is permitting. So we start the book with a divine universal perspective and we spend most of it in Job's perspective. And then we move back again to this divine sort of universal perspective. So it's important to remember that the book starts out emphasizing God's sovereignty and authority over the accuser and God's sovereignty over the works on earth. Yeah. And what we see, um, at the end of chapter one and into chapter two, Job's health, his wealth, and his children are all sort of taken away. Um, and, and we're reminded once again, like 
in all of this, Job did not sin and charge God with wrong. And so um, that is what we know about Job before we get into the conversations of friends and what they start saying. But everything up to this point is that Job has been blameless, upright, and, and at the same time, he has not sinned. He's not charging God with wrong. And so as we start getting into the advice of friends, that we have to keep that in the back of our minds. It would really be easy to draw some sort of conclusions from this section. And there are phrases and, le- and lessons that maybe we can follow from this part. But I would strongly encourage you to read through Job's process, read through the whole book before you decide how you feel or what you think about the circumstances behind Job's suffering. This is one of those stories that we really need to understand the full context, how it begins and ends before we can interpret it. Yeah. And Job's three friends come and they initially act like as positive parts of the story. These these friends, three friends are sitting with him. They're grieving with him. They're doing it in the customary way, which is kind of being silent basically for a week. It's a good thing. And we don't see them go awry yet, but this will be probably the best. Their friends, his friends at their best sort of at the end of chapter two here. Uh, So we're going to leave off on a kind of pseudo high note for these friends at least. This idea of Job's friends just sitting with him in his grief is a really good lesson for us. We in our culture tend to really love answers and oftentimes feel uncomfortable in others' griefs and want to come up with answers or solutions for them, which we'll get to in a minute. But oftentimes what somebody who's grieving needs is just the presence of someone with them. So as needs come up in the lives around you, you don't have to always have the answer, but just consider the ministry of a wordless wordless presence with someone when they're suffering. All right, let's jump into John. And so we pick up, he had just been baptizing down by the Jordan, picking up a bunch of disciples. Um, and uh, and then he decides to take a path uh, through Samaria, which was a very not standard way to walk. So Jesus is probably being a little bit intentional here. Um, and uh, he cuts through and he meets this woman by this well in the middle of the day. And um, there's probably much to make around why this is midday, why she would be alone. Maybe there's some shame, there, there's guilt, there's ways that she He's probably experienced shame from outside, let alone inside internally. Um, And Jesus has this conversation with her, which is bringing dignity to this woman who has probably been uh, probably kind of ostracized in some ways. And not only that, but he's a Jew interacting with a a Samaritan. And so um, he speaks to her, but he speaks to her in, in such a good kind of way where he's clear about sort of this woman's brokenness and sin and shame and all that she's experiencing, but yet is gentle and inviting to, to this concept of life, this living water. And he's picking up on, I mean, Jeremiah 2, Jeremiah 17 describes God himself as a spring of living water. And so Jesus is using that imagery to describe himself. And, um, and, and it seems like he's much more um, sort of revealing himself as a Messiah to this woman than he has in, in other, in, in interacting with other Jews. And so, um, but the Samaritans would have had a, a different perception. They weren't looking for um, Messiah to be this political uh, leader king in town. They were looking for a Messiah that would clarify worship. And so uh, we see that even the things that she says. And so, um, yeah, this great interaction. And then the rabbis or the disciples come up later on and, and, say, Rabbi, you need to eat, like you need energy to keep going. And Jesus is like, I have food that you guys just don't understand. Like what keeps me going is to do God's will. And like, there's a harvest here, like, which once again, it's, it's an image of food. There's a harvest here now. Like, and, and you have all these sayings about the harvest, but the harvest is happening now. And this woman who's gone to town has brought many and, and many believe in Jesus by the end of the story. Like this, this one interaction in the Samaritan town becomes this harvest for Jesus mm-hmm. by the end of the story. 
It's so cool to see who Jesus chose to bring the gospel to this town. He chose someone who likely lived under a lot of shame, was not respected. She was openly practicing sinful lives and behaviors. And yet he proclaimed himself as Messiah to her. And then she, um, after she was promised eternal life by Jesus, she immediately went out and testified to it into her whole town. So can we not do the same? Can we not also go to those around us and testify to the gospel and salvation of Jesus Christ? Yeah. And, and it's such a, that story is such a compare and contrast to, and then he ends up sort of in Galilee amongst the Jews. There's an official son. So this person's probably in Herod's court, but Jesus seems a bit skeptical of, of this guy who's like, look, like you just want signs and wonders from me. And Jesus does heal, not even with touching, but simply a word. Um, And this becomes a second sign. But I, I think this parallels even what we find in the other gospels where Jesus shows up in Galilee after like performing incredible miracles and like, they they still don't seem to totally get him until he believed. And he's like, look, like even if even if this would happen in a Gentile town, like they would all repent. But like you guys, like just want signs of wonders, and and because I'm here and because I am the Messiah, I'm certainly going to give them like like that is part of confirming who I am. But at the same time, there's there's it, it doesn't lead to this revival. It doesn't lead to everything through this broken Samaritan woman that just turns into this this all these people coming to faith. You sort of have this. Somebody who's a pretty high up position as a Jew who doesn't seem to click and and it doesn't lead to sort of this breakout bunch of people come to faith. I love how we're four chapters into John and we've seen Jesus turn water into wine at a Jewish wedding. He shared the gospel with a Jewish Pharisee. He's revealed himself as the Messiah to a Samaritan woman and he's healed an official son. So we see him as Lord of all ethnicities, all nationalities, all ages and all statuses. It's just so cool that that's happened so early into John. So uh, Jesus goes to Jerusalem uh, again. He's back down in Judea. Uh, and, And just as a reminder, like, South Israel and North Israel were not like, it's like saying like Yankees and Southerners or something like that. Like they're very different crowds, very different culture. Um, the, the Northerners certainly had a fair amount of disdain for the, the folks down in Judea as like the uh, out of touch elites, the, the broken systems of the priesthood when the Northerners would have been looked at as sort of a little more backwoods and things like that. And so um, there's very much this, this, this play out, I think in gospel of John more than anywhere else of like the two crowds. Uh, and, but Jesus is back in Judea and, um, there's this man, he's isolated, he's blind. Um, Jesus enters into his brokenness. He starts talking to him and has a legitimate question. Like, do you want to be healed? And, and I think that's always the Jesus invitation to us. It's like, do you really want to, 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 to experience the wholeness that I offer you? And, and Jesus does heal him. Uh, but the, but that's not even the point of the story. I mean, we've seen Jesus heal and that's amazing, but, but it turns into this drama over, uh, what is work on the Sabbath and a to this point, the, the leaders had defined it so rigidly. Um, like they'll take Jeremiah 17, five, which says like, do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day or bring it by the gates in Jerusalem. And they'll take that and say, therefore we shouldn't carry anything in the temple. That's bearing a burden that you shouldn't be carrying a mat or anything. And so they come along and instead of noticing that there's this man who they've seen for years, probably who is broken and, 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 and blind. I don't want to use the word broken, but he's blind. He's, he's desperate. He's been probably suffering in all these ways and suddenly he's healed. But all they notice is the mat and the fact that he might be breaking this law. And Jesus meets this guy again later. And, and, and he reminds him, look, like my father is working on the Sabbath and I am too. Like, this is what I'm here for to, to, to bring the, the life that, that the Sabbath 
is about and and my father's working in it, I'm working in it. And so he's the, I mean, without saying it and other gospel writers will say it, but he's the Lord of the Sabbath is really what it's implied mm-hmm. in this text. Yeah. And that his God is his father. And so he's connecting himself with the father in a way that typically people did not. Yeah. And so he goes deeper with this sort of father son relationship. These, all these ties between the father and the son, he starts identifying himself explicitly as a son uh, by the end of this. And, he starts speaking of eternal life and, and he kind of uses the phrase that we sort of have eternal life. Now, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life, not will have, but has it now. And so if there's a question of like, uh, it's not a future thing. It's, it's a, it's a present thing, life and life eternal and life abundant. And, and consistently Jesus in his text equates himself with the father, like people who believe in me, believe in the father, people who reject me, reject the father. So, um, and he's like, believe in me now because one day there's a final resurrection. And when there is like, yes, there's a resurrection of life to those who believe, but there's a resurrection of judgment to those who don't. And so, um, Jesus is, is pretty clear that, that there's, there's a way that is life and there's a way that that ultimately will experience judgment. Mm-hmm. Everything Jesus says in this section is just so incredibly epic. And it may not feel that way to us if we've read scripture before, or we've come to salvation at this point. For people who didn't know of Jesus' death and resurrection, it's just so intense what he's saying. But because of him, we can pass from judgment to life. And this concept of the Father giving all judgment to the Son is what paves the way for Jesus the Son to take on the judgment meant for us. Our eternal life is secured by Jesus satisfying God's wrath on the cross. And Jesus starts pointing out sort of his authority kind of question of those who have kind of witness to him. He's like, look, John the Baptist pointed towards me. My own works are showing what I am. My father spoke about me through the scriptures of Moses, your, your own prophet that you guys love to study and identify with so much. Like he is pointing to me. And he kind of has this harsh criticism towards this crowd being like, look, like you guys all study Moses and, 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 and you understand, but, but Moses is, accusing you in some ways. Like he's the one who pointed to me. He's the one who pointed to me, Jesus. And, and, but now you're just ignoring what he said because he's the one pointing to me. And since you're ignoring Moses, like the Moses, if you ignore what he says, you are definitely not going to listen to me. And so he's just pushing back on these folks who are like, yeah, but Moses said, it's like, you are clearly not understanding Moses. And, and we see Luke pick up on this very same language. Like if you do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will you be convinced if someone should rise from dead. And, And I think Jesus is doing the same thing. Like, look, if you're, if you say you're reading Moses, but like you totally ignore some of the stuff that directly points towards me and then like. Take it up with Moses. You seem to be ignoring him. These Jews really thought that they had all the answers through Scripture, but they were using the Scripture as a means to control and assert ultimate authority rather than receive life. And we have seen this in certain forms of Christianity, even mainstream Christianity, where people are known more by who they disagree with than the life of Christ and love or the glory that comes from Christ. And so if you are someone who errs on the side of being more academic and study oriented, continue to pursue that. It is important, but be cautious that it is driven by humility and by love for others more than control or asserting ungodly authority over others. Yeah. Yeah. And the sort of like the, the questions of like searching the scriptures and not finding like you can be someone who's just an expert on the scriptures and not encounter the, the God who the scriptures point to. And I think that's what Jesus points out to, to, to folks. It's like, look, like you are masters of the word, but I'm standing right in front of you. And the word is pointing literally at me. Like you can meet the God of the scriptures right now, but you're missing it. And so uh, I think that can be so true of us. 
then Jesus feeds the 5,000 in the context at least for John certainly introduces that this is at the time of Passover. Um, and so I think that's a key note as how we start interpreting this, that at the time when everybody's reenacting Moses and, and not only remembering, um, the, the Passover meal, but even the unleavened bread and, and man, and manna as they got into the desert and stuff like, like all this stuff would have been included in what they, they talked through. And so I think Jesus is putting on his best Moses and he goes to a mountain, he's feeding people. Uh, even more importantly, there's a miraculous feeding in this desert place. And, um, and, and we'll pick up a little bit, like, I think Jesus picks up on some of the the themes as he gets into the bread of life dialogue in a moment, but there's just a callback to people just miraculously eating manna in the desert. And um, not only that, but the Passover feast itself. And so, and the people themselves connect it and they're sort of like, look, you must be the prophet that Moses talked about. Like they're connecting the dots about what is happening at this moment, but they seem to be okay, but now let's go make you a King. Like, and, and, have totally missed the point of what to do with the prophet when he comes. And so um, Jesus at, at, kind of sneaks away as soon as they start like acting like, all right, we need the Messiah to now go be the King. Um, and, and Jesus is like, ah, like they're connected the dots, but only to a point. I really love seeing the different interactions in this story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 and how John references who'd said what. He seems to put a lot of emphasis on dialogue in this book. And you just see different personalities of the different people learning from him, whether it was earlier with Nicodemus or the woman at the well, or the different disciples asking different questions in this. Pay attention to the dialogue. Pay attention to the other people in these stories and how they respond to Jesus and see what, what kind of resonates with you. Yeah. And then Jesus walks on water. Uh, mm-hmm. And I will admit, I, I'm I'm always one who really likes like how stories are placed in their context. And I struggle uh, uh, at this moment. I, I don't have much insight yet as to like why this story exists to kind of break up the, the feeding and then this conversation around bread. And I, I don't know. I don't yeah. know what it is yet. Me either. And I'm okay with that. That's part of the process. If I had all the answers, then I'm probably more foolish than I, I think I am. And so, uh, and then there's a follow up conversation on the bread of life. Um, and, and I think he's picking up on points that he just got into and started down on the previous feeding story. And so Jesus fed this crowd and, and Jesus starts pointing out that he is the one who feeds now. And he's the one sent by God, just like the manna was sent from God and that he is the food, which is so layered because, um, not only is Jesus starting to compare himself to the manna, but we even know like in that context of like the teaching about the manna is that man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the Lord. And so Jesus, yes is the manna but he's also like the word sense like john has been clear from chapter one that he is that too and jesus feeds us in a way that's like not just bread he's certainly feeding in bread here but there's a supernatural soul food that's greater than manna that that we really do need from god going all the way back to the to, to the moses story and so this is jesus inviting people into that but at the same time like they don't understand it. And some of the language he uses is cryptic and odd. They start thinking maybe he's like talking about cannibalism and, and they don't understand that like he's really speaking symbolically, which yeah, it would have been a bit new for the, for someone to come along going, you need to eat my flesh. And so um, they're struggling to understand exactly what Jesus is talking about. So just as God provided manna for Israel in the wilderness, he provided the manna of Christ's flesh or his death to provide for us in the wilderness of sin. So when the disciples ask about what work to do or to do the works of God, Jesus replies that the only response really is to believe in him. We are saved by grace through faith and not any kind of works. All right. So Psalm 36. 
Yeah, I appreciate, again, the emphasis on the steadfast love of God. It extends to the heavens. It's precious. It's going to continue for those who know him. Yeah, David seems to be running from his enemies, maybe either Saul or his son. Um, but yet, yeah, he finds God's love in the midst of this sort of struggle uh, with, with, with an enemy. And then Psalm 119, or at least the random chunk that we're reading. <laughs> I love how the author in this section truly desires the Lord and really adores his word. He sheds tears because people do not keep his law, God's law. So may we also be people who desire the Lord and not just what he can offer us. Yeah. And the writer, again, is talking about rivals who seek to attack him or stuff like that. But he's like, but God's been faithful and he's spoken these words and these promises. And that's where I'm going to focus my attention. Next week. So in Job, I'd just encourage you to learn what you can from Job's friends. What are they saying and how are they treating a suffering friend? And how can you learn maybe what not to do from watching them? And in the New Testament, follow this imagery. Follow the themes of light and water as we continue to read through John. And also see if you can think of any Old Testament connections that Jesus is making. Yeah, for the Old Testament, I mean, just to help you. Sometimes I don't like going down this route because I really want you to read it in context. But sometimes when you divide up a book into like all these different weak sections, we, we lose a little bit of the broader context. So um, as you read through, it's important to know, like at the end of the story of Job, all these friends kind of get condemned by God for the advice that they try to give Job. Um, and, and Job will eventually have to pray for them so that they don't get punished for that process. And so as you're going in, it may be helpful, like being like, okay, like, what about this advice doesn't seem right? Um, even though some of the things they say will be true and there'll be things that are, are true in some ways. Um, but what about the advice that they're giving? What about their advice in Job's context might seem not quite right or wrong. Um, and in the new Testament, I, I think there's some really juicy stuff in this week coming up. Um, and, and it, and if you want to take a moment, read some of the history of like, particularly the feast of booths. There were ceremonies that had been included, particularly ceremonies that existed with light and water. Um, also scriptures that they would have been reading that week. Um, I think it all brings to light some of the stuff and, and these stories that are all kind of put together in a certain order about what, um, what had happened, um, as Jesus heads to Jerusalem and has these interactions next week. Thanks y'all. Thanks. Thanks.